Hi everyone, welcome back to China and the Caribbean. This episode features Parsifal de Sola, a Chinese foreign policy analyst focused on Sino-Venezuelan relations. He is also the founder and CEO of the Andreas Baylor Foundation based in Bogota, Colombia. Be sure to check the show notes for some links to the information discussed in the episode. There's, it seems to be a big difference in analysis when it comes to China, Latin America, and the Caribbean relations, just depending on where you're standing from doing the analysis. When I read policy papers from the U.S., for example, about China LAC engagement, they usually have no nuance on the LAC side of things. Guess I'm, I'm curious if you found this to be true as well. Definitely, I completely agree with that. Generally speaking, when we talk about U.S. analysis of Sino-Latin American relations, we're talking about policy papers from the likes of, be it the, the National Endowment for Democracy or Atlantic Council, and and, and well, all these uh, Washington D.C. based think tanks. I think the thing that they haven't gotten a grasp of is first the role of Latin American countries in the relationship. So these studies tend to focus only on the Chinese side. So, so the questions are: What does China want in Latin America? How has China influenced Latin America? Has China exported its surveillance technology to Latin America, et cetera, et cetera? But there's no. There's no agency given to Latin American countries in these broad analyses. So, just to give you a couple of examples, talking about China-Venezuela relations, there's there's no mention of or, or very little mention of how Venezuela's lack of institutions, the, the crumbling of its oil infrastructure, how all these Venezuelan domestic issues played in the in the China-Venezuela relationship. Had Venezuela had stronger institutions, had Venezuela had a strong legal system, probably China would have managed to complete a lot of the projects that they were initially planned to carry out. So this. Uh, this trend to put the blame on the Chinese side and not take into account domestic factors from these Latin American countries that actually played into a Chinese interests in the countries in the first place and b in many of these Sino-Latin American joint ventures going bust. Almost every conversation about China in the LAC region start with loans, of course. What is often not parsed out is that Venezuela received a vast, vast lion's share of these loans. I think around sixty-two billion U.S. dollars worth, and it's only since twenty o seven. Why is China so invested in Venezuela? 
as it's only you know quite quite recently. Well, to answer that question, we have to go back to the beginning of the 2000s and what was happening in Venezuela at the time. So there are several aspects that all come together to explain China's interests. The one that's usually focused on is the is the topic of oil, right? So you have this petro state, the most important, well, the only one in the Americas. You have this important tailwind that rose the the barrel of oil to over a hundred dollars per barrel in a matter of years. And this gave Venezuela an important geopolitical influence in the region. At the moment, China was looking to diversify its uh, suppliers of oil. And well, obviously, Venezuela having the biggest reserves in the world, even larger than than Saudi Arabia, was, let's say, an an, an obvious choice. So this is like the, the mainstream argument on why China focused or put its eye on Venezuela. I have a different take on this. So this is a country that by 2006, 2007, was was a big player in the region, was promoting initiatives to unite the region under a, a regional leadership of which Venezuela was a big part of. But most importantly, it left out the United States. So you had organizations like ALBA, you had a strengthening of Mercosur, you had, well, the creation of several development funds throughout the region. So this is what primarily caught China's attention because Venezuela was the leader of these new intra-regional initiatives that, well, according to rhetoric from Venezuela, but from other members of well, as well, it goes into this anti-imperialist, anti-U.S., independent movement of, of, of the, you know, so-called oppressed nations of Latin America. When you put both of these pieces into the puzzle, so you have this oil-tailed wind, you have the, the biggest reserves on earth, and then you have a Chavez administration that is using those unprecedented funds to become a regional power, promoting the, the separation of the historic relationship between the countries of Latin America and the United States. So this narrative and this this role that Venezuela was playing fit perfectly into what China was seeking at the time. So it was, in a way, looking for uh, first to diversify its its oil portfolio, but then again, looking for partners that throughout the world, in Latin America's case, Venezuela was the the beachhead through which China could extend its its influence to the region through what Chavez was actually doing at the time. And then on the Venezuelan side, why was Chavez so uh, interested in working with China and taking this amount of money? So, well, I see two reasons for this. The first one is the, the financial crisis of 2008. And the second one is the, the collapse of Venezuela's oil industry. 
prior to 2008. So you had, as I mentioned, this this oil tailwind, and Chavez well used uh, that money to develop a bunch of uh, a series of social programs to reduce poverty. The the important uh, detail of these investments is that most of the money was coming from the oil industries. Basically, instead, Chavez was using PDVSA, uh, Venezuela's national uh, oil company, as a piggy bank to sustain all this social investment, both in Venezuela and abroad. And the side effect of this was the, the, the deterioration of the oil industry. Instead of at least saving part of that money or using part of that money to reinvest in the oil industry to maintain it as a uh, the, the well the international juggernaut that PDVSA used to be back in the 90s the social ex- the social expenditures were at the expense of PDVSA per se so if you actually look at Venezuela's oil output throughout Chavez's tenure and the peak of Venezuela's output was actually the day Chavez took office. So back in 1999, Venezuela was exporting around 3 million barrels uh, per day. Venezuela never topped uh, 3 million barrels throughout the 2000s. And well, and after the 2010s, after Maduro took over, this continued to decline. Nowadays, its best estimates are around uh, 600 to 700,000 barrels. And then you have this mixture in 2008 where the, the, the price of oil plummets. Venezuela's oil output capacity was, well, going down the drain. And then you have China stepping in at the perfect time. Actually, the first like big, big loan extension to Venezuela was in 2007. So if you look at uh, Perebesa's books and Venezuela's books in 2007, you already saw that there were straining signs or that were putting pressure on the government to keep on their massive subsidies, both domestically and as well as abroad. When Just to give you an example that actually I found out recently, it blew my mind. Talking about Petrocaribe and the subsidies, that Venezuela offered in the mid-2000s just gives you an idea of what Venezuela was doing at the time and what China, what caught China's attention. So from 2005 to 2007, U.S. assistance to Petrocaribe countries roams around the $500 million, with Haiti taking the lion's share with about $220 million. Then Venezuela's assistance only in 2006 in the form of concessional loans and oil subsidies, the minimum estimate is around $4 billion. So so this was only in 2006. Okay. Um, do, do, do we know how that money was distributed? Like, was there a particular country that got like a big chunk of it? Or was it, you know, kind of evenly parsed out in the Caribbean? Well, Cuba. Cuba by far. Cuba received around half of it or close to half of it. So, so yeah. So th- that's what Venezuela was doing at the time. Then obviously you have a, a, a reduction of oil output in 2000. You already saw it in 2007, 2008. Uh, financial crisis comes along. Price of oil plummets and Chinese loans uh, extended that honeymoon period that Chavez was enjoying from since the early 2000s to continue with all these 
lavish expenditures for at least a couple of years more. So yeah, that that was the the Venezuelan interest on obtaining these these massive loans on behalf of China. Yeah. Oh, okay. And the the framing the geopolitical framing you gave for the engagement rationale does also it makes a lot of sense in the background of the pink tide in Latin America. This is a a group of these socialist leaning leaders. So you have Ortega in Nicaragua, Morales in Bolivia, Castro in Cuba, Correa in Ecuador, and you know Chavez in Venezuela, and so on. And if China is kind of seeing Venezuela as a beachhead in this entire pink tide, then of course it makes sense why they would uh, plunge so much money into Venezuela. But I guess it doesn't really seem to be like a ideology thing, yeah. Regardless of that, so it's more like these socialist leaning uh, leaders. They are not because they're not getting any money because they're socialists, but rather because they are more willing to go against the U.S. and you know create, as you said, create space for China to get a foothold in Latin America. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I completely agree. Uh, I wouldn't say it's so much ideology. It was my view. Chinese authorities tend to be a little, a little skeptical with with, with all this grandois leftist ideology rhetoric. The important thing is putting ideology aside. The fact is that this was coalition of countries, and these were countries that were promoting regional integration and an in quote unquote independence from the United States. So this obviously um, interested Chinese authorities because it, it's it's not so much like going against the United States. It's more like opening up spaces for itself, be it politically, be it in terms of finance, be it in terms of economics, new markets, etc. So if these countries were pushing aside the U.S., uh, well, a bunch of areas w- would be open to new interactions internationally. And that benefited China in in, in, in in a lot of ways. Hmm. Yeah, and given that China did give Venezuela a big pot of money, what did Chavez actually do with it? What he said on paper, and that is what what actually was done with the money. <laughs> so on paper, these loans they amount to over 62 billion from beginning in 2007 till 2015 the big chunk of it 40 billion the first 20 were in 2007 and the second 20 were in 2010 this were still chavez uh, while chavez was still in office this money was supposed to do two things part of it was to be invested by the venezuelan government into domestic projects, most of them in the infrastructure sector, but also in developing its oil industry and its mining capacity. So those those were like the three main projects. Infrastructure, which overlaps with, with the oil industry because there was supposed to be a development of the oil infrastructure as well. We're talking about Venezuela's first transnational railway. We're talking about housing projects, development of the agricultural industry. Those those were the aims of, of these funds. And they were supposed to be invested either through the Venezuelan government or through Sino-Venezuelan joint ventures. 
the best estimates we're talking about maybe 50 50 at least in paper because a lot of these uh, a lot of these loans what we have from mostly unofficial sources given the fact that we don't have access to to the to the contracts that they have never been made public is that there were part of the conditionalities were that you know Chinese uh, companies had to be involved in these in these projects a lot of these uh, infrastructure projects we you saw Chinese companies participating and and in the late 2000s you saw an, a huge influx of Chinese companies and Chinese personnel flowing into Venezuela so you had Aside from the big names like CNPC or Sinopec or Huawei, CTE, etc., you also saw smaller companies that were starting to pop out all throughout the country, but primarily in Caracas. So that's that's on paper. The truth of the matter is that at least the money that we can account for it. The Chavez administration continue using that money for the same purposes as before with the petrodollars. So they continued with social programs, especially just prior to Chavez's last uh, election. And um, the second chunk of the Santa Venezuelan fund, these 20 billion that uh, were given by China in 2010, 8 billion of those 20 simply like vanished as like out of thin air. And what happened was Chavez used that money for for the election and for all the subsidies that came the year prior to the election. And there, there was obvious discontent on the Chinese side, and the leaks from the Chinese embassy pointed to you know, strong criticism from Chinese authorities asking for, well, basically, they wanted to know what had happened with the money because they had no oversight of, of, of these, of the Fonden, which was the... the Venezuela Development Fund, were, were, which was the fund these funds were deposited into. So Chavez used at his discretion part of these funds. And the rest of the money, some were were actually invested. And they, you, you do see some, some projects that were maybe not finished, but at least to some uh, percentage, you saw um, developments in agriculture. You saw, well, there was... What was supposed to be the biggest domestic appliance factory built in Latin America, which was actually built, it cost around 700 to $800 million in the outskirts of Caracas, but the factory never, never started operations because it lacked electricity. So the Venezuelan electricity grid, which was collapsing at the time, didn't have a way to to supply such a big factory, and it never started. It was built. It's there. Well, it has been mostly dismantled uh, by now because this was in the early 2010s. So there was there was money actually invested, and things were built, but most of the results were lackluster, just to say it mildly. I remember reading about the Tinaco Anaco Railway that's supposed to be built by, I think, maybe China Railway. And it was kind of signaled as this, not only a, you know, the largest ever railway in just Latin America, or, but also this huge symbolic project because only China is doing it and it's going to be built in Venezuela. But I don't think that was ever completed either, right? 
it, it's not that it was never finished. It, it, it actually never got past it 20, 30 percent. Oh, so hmm. this was a railway that was going to unite basically the uh, Venezuela's Andean region to the to the west with Venezuela's eastern states. It, it, it was a huge fiasco. We really do not have specific numbers in terms of the amount of money that went into it, but the results are in plain sight. Basically, they're not in plain sight because there was nothing built. There was just specific points where they were building the stations where the, the, the railway was going to go through in several points in the different states of, of Venezuela. But the railway per se, I'm trying to remember here, but I think not more than 10, 10 to 15 kilometers of railway were actually built of what was going to be 1,100 kilometers long. So that, and the money, the money was spent. So what happened to it? Who stole it? Who were the intermediaries that, you know, took on the, the money to make things happen, to grease up the, the permits and that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. No one, no one really knows what, what actually happened to the money. And that was supposed, as, as you mentioned, that was supposed to be like a big, symbolic infrastructure project, not only from the Venezuelan side as as a achievement of the Bolivarian revolution, but also from the Chinese side, because this was supposed to be, you know, the first big railway project that Chinese companies built in Latin America, and it would be used as an example for you know other countries to, to take part. Oh, the money that China loaned to Venezuela was it in US dollars or RMB? It's it's a mixture. So the first the first twenty billion in two thousand and seven, where uh, again we don't know the the, the percentages uh, of the distribution, but a, a big a majority of it was in USD, and part of it was in basically appliances and contracts with Chinese companies. The second 20 billion were half and half, were 10 billion in USD and 10 billion in RMB. And the rest of the, what would, uh, so, so you were still accounted, still missing around 22 billion were also a mixture. But these latter 22 billion were much more, there was a lot more oversight on the Chinese side, precisely because of what had happened with the initial 40 billion. But yeah, a lot of it was of, of the, this this latter part of the funds was was extended through Chinese banks, primarily the China Development Bank, in order to keep track of what Venezuela was actually doing with the money. But a big part of it, yeah, was in was in RMB as well. And if I'm not mistaken, the loans, or at least some of the loans that China gave to Venezuela, are actually backed by oil. They're not. Uh, repaid in this normal currency is also oil-backed loans. Yeah, everything that Venezuela received from China is oil-backed. So future future sales of oil, basically. So the the what you're referring to this was in 2016, if I know, 2015, 2016. It was a renegotiation of the Venezuelan debt, where. China extended a two-year grace period on on the loans, so Venezuela would only be paying the interest rates at the time. But then in 2019 came uh, Huang Guaido appeared in the picture, and uh, U.S. sanctions 
started taking, well, were put in place, started taking an effect. So this also put pressure on the Sino-Venezuelan relationship because of Venezuela's lack of, of channels to actually pay China in, in oil. I'd assume that given the, you know, pretty harsh U.S. sanctions on Venezuela, that because of the oil-backed nature, this is a pretty big dampen on China's ability to get repaid for these loans. Uh, no, but as far as I'm aware of, Chinese company, this was once sanctions were put in place, the major Chinese oil players in Venezuela took a step back and actually stopped receiving or stopped receiving Venezuelan oil or stop because they would trigger the sanctions of the U.S. and that would affect their operations elsewhere. That being said, there's... Uh, Oil sanctions are, uh, at least, in, well, uh, generally speaking, but in Venezuela's case, are really hard to implement. There was just a, a publication about, I think it was last week or two weeks ago from Bloomberg, where they explained how Venezuela's oil is actually ended up in China through a, a, a myriad of, of mechanisms, some of them being, you know, turning off the transponders of the tankers, or others are like doing transit oil exchanges in open sea. So smaller tankers take off from Venezuela and then somewhere in open sea, they do this. They, they change the oil to bigger tankers, which as well change the, the flags of, of origin so they can, you know, bypass surveillance. So th there's a bunch of ways they actually do. And there's evidence, of, as the, the article points out, that Venezuela's, Venezuela's oil is actually ending up in, in refineries in Malaysia and in China as well. So it seems that China is pretty invested in, in Venezuela. And even now they have the political chaos going on there of the Maduro side, the Guaido side, the entire international battle over the governance of Venezuela, China probably can't pull out. It probably holds sunken cost fallacy at play, but uh, what do you think of that? I have a different take on that, because well, usually that's, that's, that's the way the argument goes. You know, China's too invested in Venezuela to pull out now. But that being said, the estimates of just Venezuela's outstanding loan to, to China roams around the 20 billion, give or take a couple of billion. So yes, it's an important amount of money, but in terms of Chinese financing abroad, it's, it's not that, it's not that representative, especially since, you know, this were loans that were, were extended over 10 years, 12 years ago. So my view is that China is simply bidding its time. It's waiting to see what happens in Venezuela. It pulled out a lot of its biggest operations. So CNPC left Venezuela after the sanctions. There's still some smaller companies and, and China is also working with what are basically Venezuela military owned shell companies and working through them to still maintain operations to some extent in Venezuela. And, and they're just, you know, waiting out the storm, seeing what happens. They don't want to pull out completely because regardless of who comes up on top, either if, if, if Maduro manages to, to stabilize the situation or there's an eventual change of government, China wants to make it's hedging its bets. It's, it's you know, keeping all its cards on the table, seeing what happens. And well, if 
no matter which way the resolution goes, China will deal with whoever you know comes out on top. So it's basically you know waiting waiting it out and maintaining open channels both with uh, Maduro as well as with uh, Juan Guaido's interim presidency. So moving to my final question. So your foundation, the Andreas Bello Foundation, did a really good study that I came across. And it was using uh, online social media data to analyze the uh, diplomacy of China in Latin America and the Caribbean. And it's sort of like, yes, finally, because it's really shocking to me that many think tanks don't actually use uh, digital data analysis to figure out different foreign policy strategies and understand how the engagement is actually going to happen online, how it is happening online. So have you found any particularly uh, insightful things after we did your study of Chinese uh, digital diplomacy in the LASE? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It was one of the reasons why we decided to, to do this project was precisely because no one was covering it. No one was doing work related to what China was has been doing online primarily on Twitter. So, yeah, we, we decided to take a look at it, and th- there were a couple of interesting findings. Probably the main one was the increase in participation of Chinese official accounts, primarily ambassadors, embassies, consulates, and consuls. If you do a comparison between July 2020 and December 2019. So in a span of six to seven months, the amount of accounts increased by a close to 40%. And, and, and prior to 2020, the accounts that existed uh, weren't really that active. They mostly retweeted content from official Chinese sources like China Daily or, or the Global Times in their Spanish versions. So that's the, the second thing. Throughout 2020, you, you saw a, a, a more savvy approach to content development from these accounts. Most of them publish in fluent Spanish. In the case of Brazil, it's very well-versed Portuguese content. And the amount of content that you see in China Daily in Spanish and Global Times in Spanish and, and, and other outlets, it's, it's increasing. A larger coverage of local news from Chinese outlets. So I think this is really interesting because contrary to how it is usually depicted as Chinese propaganda that is very CCP-centric, or I think they're, they're actually covering more topics that are of interest to a local audience, which is a much more intelligent way to actually interact and gain at least some sort of representation in the local political, economic, or social discourse by these Chinese officials or Chinese entities. So that was that was very interesting to see. It still remains an incipient effort because if you compare both the amount of accounts as well as the amount of interactions that they have, by interactions, I mean by tweets, retweets, replies, it's still they still pale in comparison to be it local politicians or foreign entities like well the 
mostly in the U.S., but also European diplomats might have might be like much more engaged in, in Latin American topics. So I think they're just getting started. I we, we at the foundation we, we we're going to be in late February. We're going to be putting out the second study of the second semester of 2020, and we expect to see the growing trend in content creation interactions to have carried out to to have. Uh, taking place throughout the second semester of 2020 and probably 2021 is it's especially with the vaccine rollouts we will definitely see the the trend continue thank you so much Parsifal, for having this chat it was really fun no no Rajid. yeah same same here i uh, thank you very much for inviting me it's been my pleasure tonight we're going and have some fun Come on, hold on to your man, and let me do, and let me do, and let me do a little.